Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. My name is Amran Zaman, and today I'll be taking a deep dive into the Islamic State's surprise January 28th attack on a Roman Catholic church in Istanbul. It was the group's first successful attack on Turkey since 2017, when an Islamic State gunman opened fire at a nightclub in Istanbul, killing dozens of New Year revelers. This attack claimed one life. Turkey was long accused of facilitating the passage of tens of thousands of jihadis, crossing through its territory to get to Syria, where they unsuccessfully sought to overthrow the regime of Syrian strongman Bashar al-Assad. They included thousands of Islamic State fighters and their families, who established their so-called caliphate and unleashed a reign of terror across the region. Syria's Kurdish forces that Turkey considers a threat to its national security were among their prime targets. It was these Kurds with US backing who destroyed the Islamic State's caliphate in 2019. So did Turkey deserve to be called the Jihadi Highway and why is the Islamic State targeting it now? With us here to discuss these questions is Aaron Zelin, the Gloria and Ken Levy Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. So, Aaron, thanks a lot for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Well, can you explain to us the significance of this attack that comes after seven years in Turkey by the Islamic State? I think that there's two main things that are significant related to it. One, um, as you noted, this is the first time that the Islamic State has successfully been able to conduct an attack within Turkey. Um, This, of course, has not been because they haven't been trying. They have been trying a lot. Um, uh, And then two, in relation to this, is that unlike in the past, in 2017 and earlier, when they claimed an attack, they would just note that it was in Turkey this time. Um, they noted that this is from an official province of the Islamic State called Wilayat Turkiya, or the Turkey province, um, uh, which goes back to an announcement back in uh, April 2019, when then leader of the Islamic State, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, um, uh, showed off that they were creating this province essentially in a, in a video at the time. Um, but uh, since that time period, you know, four and a half years or so, um, they haven't been able to make anything out of it beyond just the short other video. So what does the Vilayat al-Turki actually mean? What, what is that? Can you just explain to our audience? Is this like a yeah. piece of land uh, like they're carving out for the, their caliphate, which, you know, doesn't exist anymore? Sure. So the Islamic State, the way it sets itself up as an organization, it has a number of provinces. Um, so in Iraq and Syria, when they were in control of territory, there are um, a dozen or so provinces between the two countries. Um, now, since they lost territory, they just call it, you know, Wilayat al-Iraq or Wilayat al-Sham um, for Iraq and Syria. Um, but beyond the core territory, they also created a number of other provinces in other parts of the world, whether in Sinai, Algeria, Nigeria, Mali, 
the Caucasus, Afghanistan, Yemen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, although it makes it sound like they are in control of territory, um, uh, not every location where they claim that they have a province, the group actually does control territory. Um, the only places where it really controls territory nowadays is maybe in parts of Mali. Um, they also announced actually uh, on February 1st that they just took over some territory in Somalia, though, again, hard to know because that's very early reporting. But as, as far as we know, you know, they don't control any territory in Turkey at all. You know, the Turkish government has full sovereignty over its own territory. It's more um, showing that uh, this land they view as is having provincial status within the administration of the Islamic State's bureaucracy, therefore providing it a higher level of status than say, if they did an attack elsewhere. So if we look at a recent example, when the Islamic State um, you know, claimed the attack in Kerman, Iran, um, uh, you know, in early January, they just said it was uh, in Iran. It didn't say Wilayat al-Iran or Wilayat Fars or something along those lines. Similarly, if you look at attacks, you know, traditionally in the in Western countries that they've done in the past, where it's, you know, in France or Belgium, where they had some of their largest attacks, uh, you know, 2015-16 time period, it would just say Franca or Belgica for France and Belgium. And, and, and just like that, prior to you know, this case when they did attacks in 2017 and before, it just said Turkey, whereas this time it said we lie at Turkey. So it's more just illustrating from the perspective of the Islamic State that, um, you know, what they're trying to do in Turkey is very important to their broader, you know, strategies and organization now. Well, that would come as a surprise to lots of people because, as you know, Turkey was commonly referred to as the jihadist highway and accused of looking the other way as all these foreign fighters uh, crossed through Turkey into Syria. And if you talk to the Syrian Kurdish leadership in particular, the Syrian Democratic Forces, the United States top ally in the fight against the Islamic State, they'll say that Turkey has been aiding, abetting the Islamic State to attack them. Uh, and they'll provide you with numerous examples. And uh, of course, that with that of Kobani, the battle for Kobani in 2014, that Syrian Kurdish border town, which was under Islamic State siege, and uh, the Turkish prime minister at the time, who's now the president, Erdogan, seemed to almost relish the prospect of Kobani falling to the Islamic State when he said Kobani is about to fall and this triggered massive riots in the Kurdish parts of Turkey. I mean, do you think Turkey is getting an unfair rap over the Islamic State, especially um, just looking at your article? You took talk about all these attacks that they mounted that were thwarted by Turkey. What, what's the reality here? What I mean, is Turkey, did Turkey ever help the Islamic State or is the Islamic State at war with Turkey as well? Or is it more complicated? I think it's uh, complicated. Uh, for one, if you, if you look at the uh, history of the foreign fighter mobilization to Syria, it's important to remember that prior to, you know, uh, 2013, 2014, a lot of the foreign fighters that initially went were going because they wanted to help Syrians in general fight against the Assad regime because of the massacres um, taking place. Then you sort of had this phase where a number of foreign fighters then joined up with Jabhat al-Nusra, which is more of an Al-Qaeda affiliate. And then later on, you saw this spike in foreign fighters again when the Islamic State um, 
announced the caliphate in June uh, 2014. Um, you know, one of the things to note is that the Turkish government obviously wanted the Assad regime to fall. So that is true. And they did support a number of free Syrian army, um, you know, rebel groups. And to this day, now they have this proxy force in the Syrian national army. And then there's civilian apparatus, the Syrian interim government. So what might seem is like an aligned policy because there are similar interests in an end goal of say the Assad regime being gone um, or not wanting to have some Kurdish autonomous region doesn't necessarily mean the Turkish government likes the Islamic State. It's important to remember that the Turkish government has had the group as a designated terrorist organization um, going back years. Also, when the Islamic State initially took over Mosul back in 2014, a number of Turkish diplomats were uh, kidnapped by the Islamic State. Um, and, and then, as I and then as I noted, you know, between. Uh, you know, uh, 2014 through 2017, the Islamic State carried out more than 20 attacks on Turkish territory. Um, within the Islamic State's ideological worldview, they have never liked Turkey. They view them as apostates um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it's a nation state and therefore not involved in their caliphate project. Two, they have a secular constitution. Um, three, they do work with the Kurdish Peshmerga and the KRG in Kurdistan. Um, you know, another reason is that they're part of NATO and therefore inherently part of this Western alliance. Um, uh, and that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. Um, so while it is true that on the surface, it might seem that some of the things might align when you actually dig deeper into it, um, they really don't, especially since when you look at it from the Islamic State's perspective, they literally hate the Turkish state, they hate Erdogan um, and, and everybody involved in that. Uh, and it's, it's important to remember, too, that, you know, Turkey has one of the largest tourist industries in the world, meaning there are tens of millions of people that come to Turkey every year to go there for tourism. So the fact that you had all these foreign fighters amongst this, you know, broader cohort of tourists, um, you know, it's, it, it's, and it's hard to necessarily know who amongst them might trying to be go to Syria. It's not, it's not like you're just getting tourists from a few different countries. These are people coming from all over the world that are coming to Turkey to be tourists. Um, and the thing too is, is that a lot of governments weren't necessarily providing intelligence initially to the Turkish government to pick out who might be citizens that are trying to go to Syria to join up with you know, the Free Syrian Army or later with Jabhat al-Nusra and then obviously with the Islamic State. Um, over time, as the threats seem to be far more serious from many countries' perspectives, they started um, you know, providing more intelligence to Turkey. Of course, Turkey then also built a border wall along the Syrian border, which helped mitigate things. And especially since the spring of 2015, we really didn't see the same level of mobilization across the border. And Turkey was able to better stop a lot of uh, people in general going across that border. Um, and, and therefore, that's why, you know, since that time period, or even a few years early, if you add all together, they've deported more than 9,000 foreigners that the, the, gov the Turkish government believes to have been, um, you know, associated or interested in joining up with the Islamic State. Um, so they've done a lot. And, you know, without all of sort of the um, different uh, operations against the Islamic State within Turkey itself, there likely would have been far more than 20 attacks over the years. Well, uh, these 300 plus people who got killed in Turkey by um, ISIS, or rather in ISIS attacks, 
most of them are Kurds, as the Kurds would be the first to point out. Um, and several of those attacks were carried out by repeat offenders or people with li links to previous offenders. So people question why, you know, Turkey wasn't able to prevent the attacks against the Kurds in particular. But going back to your point about the, you know, ISIS now referring to Turkey as a vilayet, as a province, and and thereby conveying its importance, what does this mean? Is there a new phase of hostility towards Turkey? Should we be concerned? Should tourists be concerned? What's going on? Why now? Well, I mean, uh, like I said earlier, the Islamic State announced this publicly, at least, or signaled towards it back in April 2019. So it's not new, per se, that they've announced that there's this wilayat uh, Turkia. Right. Um, it's more that this is the first time they've been able to successfully push through um, an attack in the last four and a half years under this um, moniker, um, you know, back in May last year, uh, the Turkish government actually arrested in northern Syria a Turkish individual that was the head of this so-called province, um, uh, illustrating that, you know, even though they hadn't been successful in doing something, they continued to plan and plot, um, and Turkey has been trying to stop them. Uh, you know, I think I think it's important to distinguish sort of Turkey's fight against the Islamic State within Turkey itself versus, say, what it maybe is doing within Syria itself, because in Syria, much of its, you know, operations are against the Syrian democratic forces and not really the Islamic State, um, because, as we know, they don't want to have this, you know, Kurdish statelet on their border. Um, for a variety of reasons, and that's why they had the three different military operations, um, you know, over the last, uh, you know, five, seven years or so. Um, so I think, you know, there's sort of a muddling in some ways between Turkey's willingness to go after the Islamic State within Syria in particular versus what it's doing in its own country to try and stop the group. Um, and, you know, in the, in, in the initial years, I think that um, they didn't necessarily maybe have the capability or intelligence to deal with it. Um, and they also probably had different priorities at the time too. Uh, but once, um, you know, there are signs that uh, this was a bigger issue, they, it was taken a lot more seriously, especially in 2016 and 17. And that's why I think it's been harder to do this. Um, you know, there's also this issue within the judicial system within Turkey as well, where they have a distinction between people who are detained and people who are arrested. Um, you know, they, the Turkish government has a lot of intelligence on many of these people involved with Islamic State activities, um, but a lot of it's intelligence-led and therefore maybe might not meet the legal threshold to prosecute somebody. Um, and that's where people come under this sort of detention category. And those that are then officially arrested, there's believed to be enough evidentiary for somebody to be prosecuted and thrown into prison um, in Turkey. Um, but because they have this intelligence on these individuals, um, it helps them better weed out the different networks within Turkey, but they can only hold them for a certain amount of time. Um, so there's also this difference between, uh, you know, this profile between what's, you know, uh, evidence within an intelligence setting and what can actually you know, pass within a legal setting, which 
obviously complicates things. One would think that maybe there should be some, um, you know, reforms related to the laws within Turkey related to this. So it makes it easier to prosecute people um, that are Islamic State supporters or plotting or what have you. Um, but, you know, uh, oh, well, the whole that's, 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 that's sort of beyond, yeah, that's sort of, we that's don't want to go there. Own. Yeah, that's beyond my specialty since, you know, I just focus no, on the jihadi stuff. I mean, it's, that's a whole different subject, and um, it's very arbitrary justice in Turkey. So sure, um, that's a whole different um, kettle of fish. But uh, the Turks will, of course, complain very bitterly about the fact, as you mentioned, that in the early days, much intelligence wasn't shared with them, and that it was probably because, as the Turks see things, that these countries wanted to get rid of these jihadis, so they were very happy to have them just leave, you know. Um, but looking at the current situation, uh, and given the fact that there's this conversation ongoing now in Washington, however much uh, DOD sort of keeps saying, no, we're not leaving Syria. And I mean, they fair enough, they won't be, not until the election is over anyway. But is is the Islamic State threat over? Is it contained? And what would happen if the United States did leave Syria and Iraq? I mean, if you look at the way things are reported generally, it would seem that the Islamic State is no longer an issue. Um, uh, the reality is, is that the Islamic State is still very active in Syria in particular, um, less so in Iraq nowadays. Um, I wouldn't say they're as strong as they were, you know, when they lost their territory in 2019, but I believe that they're stronger than um, what many believe they are. Part of this is because the Islamic State has had a strategy now for the last few years to underreport their operations in a way that they previously hadn't. So they're actually more active than they are. They just don't claim responsibility for the attacks. They want to make it seem weaker than they are because they do want the U.S. to leave. They're essentially waiting the U.S. out. And then once the U.S. leaves, they'll be able to activate things uh, much more quickly. And there's been, you know, evidence of this in a, a number of different ways um, based off of local reporting. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that could happen, you know, uh, so... And the Islamic State would be able to take advantage of it. So if the U.S. did leave, I would suspect that Turkey would um, build up even more uh, of their military campaign against the SDF um, because the U.S. would no longer be there and they'd have more free reign to do that. Likewise, Iran and its proxy forces would probably try and move in more in these areas uh, alongside the Assad regime, possibly to take the different oil fields. Um, and then you have questions about what would then happen to you know the 10,000 male prisoners that the SDF is guarding now um, in northeast Syria, as well as you know the 45,000 or so people that are women and children still in uh, IDP camps like a whole? Um, what happens if they're broken out? Um, that's a bunch of battle-hardened people um, able to come back and build up IS's uh, military capabilities again, but also its state building project again, because they would not just have men, but the women and children for this as well. Um, so it's likely that there will be greater destabilization if the U.S. left. And it's hard to say how long it would take for things to, you know, 
get back to some level of a status quo or maybe frozen conflict type setting that we've seen now since around 2020 in the Syrian context. Um, and that doesn't even get into the fact that if they were able to build up capabilities again within Syria, how that would then affect the security in Iraq. Since, of course, as we know, they you know, have this history of going back and forth between Iraq and Syria. And even though the group is much weaker in Iraq than they are in Syria nowadays, um, it would definitely provide avenues for them to slowly build themselves back up in Iraq as well and maybe have a greater chance of using the grievances of the different Shia militia in the Sunni areas to uh, recruit people again, especially amongst a younger generation that at this point, uh, so many years have pa been passed that they might not remember when the Islamic State was in power and therefore might prefer that, at least initially, <clears throat> uh, to, you know, uh, what else is going on. So I, I, I think that, you know, the U.S. leaving would actually destabilize the region even more at this juncture. So going forward, though, I mean... <laughs> What, how do you think this will all end? End. I mean, as you pointed out, there are these 10,000 male prisoners, there's this entire population of women and children, of many boys who are growing up to be men, and the SDF doesn't know what to do with them. So once they turn 18, they're incarcerated, and once they turn 12 or 13, they reach puberty. They're separated from their mothers on the grounds that A, they can you know, uh, they're going to be indoctrinated, but B, they can also procreate with in the camp. So it's a it's a huge mess. I mean, ultimately, what do you think needs to happen for this problem to be solved definitively? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I think that uh, it's not going to be solved anytime soon. I think it's more about mitigating the worst of it. And that's why, in my opinion, considering the fact that the U.S. has a very small amount of assets in Syria and they're able to more or less keep the Islamic State down in Syria as well as Iraq, that it's better to just stay there for now. I mean, the U.S. continues to have troops in places like South Korea and Germany 70 plus years after World War II. And um, nobody talks about that, but for some reason, it's a bigger deal here. And yet, in those cases, there are tens of thousands of troops in Germany and South Korea, whereas in Syria, there's a thousand at most, and they're not actively fighting. They're well, just there the difference helping is, of with course, training. That and... the, the American troops in the countries you mentioned are there at the invitation of those governments, whereas in Syria, the Syrian government says it's in breach of their sovereignty. So there is that. Um but as you say, yeah, but, without the Americans... Yeah, yeah that... but the Islamic State was targeting the United States and its allies in the region. So oh, no, uh, I mean, I'm just So they're it, not going to just it, let it, them do that back in 2014. No, of course not. Absolutely not. And um, as you say, if the Americans pull out, it's just going to be chaos. Um, so. And personally, I don't think the Assad regime has much legitimacy after murdered 500,000 people at least that has been reported though it's likely more than a million oh, so well, that's, I, that's a so, whole different <laughs> topic so obviously I, yes. I, I, I think it's important to remember that whole context that people don't want to talk about anymore that you know the whole reason that we are where we are today is because of the Assad regime so if, if things wanted to be resolved in more sustainable matters in the longer term you know I think something needs to be done related to that first 
Oh boy, pie in the sky. <laughs> well, listen, it was great having you. Thank you so much for sharing all your insight on the Islamic State. And um, I hope that um, we'll have happier things to talk about someday. I hope so too. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Aaron. And this brings us to the end of On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aaron and learned as much as I did. Thank you and goodbye.